I'm actually going to back up the two verses ahead of what we read in Scripture today. And I want to read to you two more verses. It says, eight days later, and this would be eight days after the birth of Jesus, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. On your message outline, I think it says something like, thank God it's over. Actually, I reconsidered that title, and if I were going to change the title to today's message, it would be, an honest-to-goodness baby for an honest-to-goodness world. You know, one of the satisfactions of having a new baby come into your home biologically or through adoption is that there's a whole bunch of rituals that go along with the arrival. And I, I see a few babies kind of dotting our worship center this morning. So some of this is going to be pretty fresh in the minds of some of you moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas. I mean, for example, the first ritual is this. When the woman finds out she's pregnant, she immediately tells the husband. Then the two of them kind of share their joy for a while, but they wait a little bit to tell everyone else. But then there's the ritual when you announce the pregnancy to mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and some special people, and it's kind of, oh, we're going to have a baby. Well, the next ritual is trying to select just the right name. You know, you go through books of names, and you look at the meanings of names, and you check out names and middle names and last names and maiden names and moms and dads and grandmas and grandmas. You want just the perfect name for this baby. Well, then comes a day when the baby is born, and then the husband has to rush out and buy cigars. Now, i got to be honest with you. While I think I did this, though I think I bought bubblegum cigars, I have never understood why fathers need to buy cigars to commemorate the birth of their babies. Well, another ritual is that, you know, the, that blue is for boys and pink is for girls. In fact, they help identify them in the hospital. Maternity wards often wrap baby boys in blue blankets and baby girls in those pink blankets. Now, there are other rituals that surround a birth. For example, stand outside of a hospital door, as I have on a number of occasions, and here you see a mother being wheeled out the front door in a wheelchair with this little bundle in her arms so tightly wrapped you can't see the bundle that's in the bundle. And she's normally followed by a husband who's toting several helium-filled balloons and flowers and two or three or four suitcases. Well, the next ritual is you've got to pack mama and the baby into the back seat where daddy is already firmly affixed that child baby carrier, and then the family kind of waves goodbye to the hospital, to the nurse, and the memories they've had there. But then comes the real ritual. It's called Grandma and Grandpa. See, Grandma and Grandpa got to come first to the hospital, and if they can't quite make it then, they make sure they get it to the house. And whenever Grandma and Grandpa see that little baby, oh, they begin to cry, and their chests kind of puff up with pride and overwhelming happiness. It's all part of the ritual of a brand new baby. Well, the next ritual is to figure out who the baby looks like. And so they kind of hold the baby up and turn him around kind of like you would a diamond in the light. And you kind of halfway figure out that maybe around the eyes he looks like mom. And, you know, around the ears he looks like dad. Or you know, he's got a chin like grandpa or he's got cheeks like grandma. But then the fam the, the, your friends come. And all your friends, can I hold the baby? And they almost always exclaim the same thing. They go, oh, it's so small. I've almost forgotten how little babies can be. Oh, he's so cute. 
Then, of course, it's baptism time. I mean, in mainline denominations like Lutherans, uh, you bring your baby for baptism. If you belong to a, an evangelical tradition like a Baptist, you bring the baby for christening or dedication. And generally, you've got a baptismal gown that has been passed down for years after year after year. I mean, we've got my grandpa's baptismal gown that I've been baptized in and my kids all the way down. Or you buy a new one or you borrow one. And you pick out these wonderful people called godparents or sponsors. And these and probably a whole bunch of other things that I've probably forgotten that many of you will remind me of after today's message are all rituals surrounding the birth of a baby that are part of our culture. Well, I don't know if you noticed it, but in today's scripture reading, Jesus was a real live baby too. And he also went through rituals surrounding his babyhood. In fact, there were three rituals that took place in Jesus' life as a baby. One at, one at eight days, one at 31 days, and one at 40 days. Now, at eight days, Jesus was circumcised, and in those days, they all came to the house to watch. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant between God and the person being circumcised. And guess what? When they circumcised Jesus, he howled with pain. He probably screamed bloody murder. And guess what? Everybody there, including grandma and grandpa, probably all smiled because, wow, did he have great lung power. That happened when he was eight days old. Circumcision was also the day you named the baby. During the service, the rabbi would have looked at Mary and Joseph and they would have said, he would have said, how shall this child be named? And Mary and Joseph, of course, following the uh, order from uh, heaven, delivered by the angel, said his name is Jesus. Now, that's Yeshua in uh, Greek. In Hebrew, it was Joshua. It was a very common name in those days, like Jim or John or Joe. But then at 31 days, Jesus was brought to the temple, to the temple in Jerusalem for the service of dedication. He was dedicated to the Lord because he was the firstborn male child in that family. If you were the firstborn male child, you know, like, like me, I, I'm one of those, uh, it, it, it kind of designates you as being the head of the family. You were the primary heir of the family's inheritance, and you were always the number one authority in the family with all disputes. So Jesus was brought there to be designated head of the family, dedicated to the Lord. But then on the 40th day, there was a third ritual of childhood, only this one really had not to do so much with Jesus, but with his mother Mary. It's called the uh, rite of purification. Now, since Mary had given birth to a baby boy, local rules dictated that she stay at home, in fact, not even go outside for 40 days. If she would have had a girl, she would have had to do the same thing for 80 days. You're probably wondering, what's the difference? Well. Understand they lived in a patriarchal society, and this is probably their way of punishing her for having a girl instead of a boy, since boys were more highly valued than girls in that day and culture. Kind of reminds me when Nancy and I lived in Hong Kong, people would come up and they'd say, do you have children? And I'd say, yes. Ah, dayat. <laughs> That's good. Uh, how, what do you have? A boy and a girl. Oh. And they said, okay, which is oldest? 
I'd say the sun. Oh, that yacht. Really good. Really good. Well, according to Jewish law, when Mary came for the rites of purification, she had to come to the synagogue on the 40th day, and she was there to offer either a lamb, or if she could not afford that lamb, two turtle doves and two pigeons. Now, the very fact that she offered what she offered, as we read in today's text, would indicate that Jesus was raised in a rather poor family. So we find these events surrounding Jesus' eighth day, his 31st day, and his 40th day. Jesus went through all of the cultural traditions just as we go through all of that, coming home from the hospital, buying of the cigars, dressing pink for girls, blue for boys, and on and off. Now, you may be wondering, okay, Pastor, that's really interesting stuff, but where are you going with this? Well, the reason I'm spending so much time on these rituals, and particularly discussing the rituals of Jesus' childhood, is to emphasize to you that Jesus was an honest-to-goodness, real baby. He was fully human. All of these events underscore the fact that not only was he true God, but he was also true man. If you take your Bibles and you read Matthew chapter 3, it tells us that Jesus had to fulfill the obligations of the law, namely circumcision, dedication, purification. If you go to Luke chapter 2, it says that Jesus had to fulfill the law's obligations. Read in the book of Romans, and it tells you that Jesus was in the likeness of our flesh. In the book of Philippians, it says Jesus was in the likeness of a human being. So we're still in the middle of Christmas, the 12 days of Christmas, and part of the message of Christmas is that Jesus was a real, honest-to-goodness human being just like you and me. And you need to be reminded of that because of the Incarnation, which says that God came fully as a human being, has been a stumbling block for many people, including many people who claim to be Christ followers. See, we want Jesus to be a super baby and not just a baby. We want Jesus to grow up to be a super child and then to be a super man. And pretty soon we're going to look for Jesus to be the super God flying around with a magic wand. And as a result, we sometimes end up not with the true God of the Bible. That, by the way, on your message outline is called docetism. It's a heresy. It's a false teaching. Docetism is when we do not allow Jesus to be fully human. Docetism was a heresy in the early church. It still wanders its way through Lutheran churches and Catholic churches and Presbyterian churches and Baptist churches, you name it, even to this day. And if you want the fancy word for it, I even put it on your message outline, Apollinarianism. You can use that later in a conversation at the buffet line. It's the idea, no matter whether you say docetism or Apollinarianism, that that Jesus had a human body, but on the inside... He was God. I mean, some people have said he's kind of like a super ball. You know, he looked like a ball, but he was really a super ball. He bounced higher than anyone else. Now, I'm going to illustrate how this heresy, docetism, sneaks in to the church. Now, we all know that Jesus was the son of a carpenter, right? We all know that. And so I think we could rightly assume that Jesus had carpenter's skills, However, I have the suspicion that some of you think that every time Jesus pounded the nail, the nail went in straight. And I have a feeling that some of you think that if Jesus ever missed the nail and hit his finger, all he said was, oh my, that hurt. 
Now, I'm not saying that Jesus cursed or swore, but I'm not sure he just went, oh my. There are some of you who think that when little Jesus came to the synagogue with mom and dad, he sat there perfectly still with a pious little look on his face. Now, why do we believe that? Well, it's because many of us don't believe that Jesus was an honest-to-goodness, real human being. You know, for us, Jesus has to be this super baby that grows up to be this superman. Now, there are all kinds of other instances of this in the early church that tended to deny the humanity of Jesus. A lot of these are found in these New Testament apocryphal books. They were just kind of other books written at that time that never made it into our Bible, by the way, for very good reason. For example, there's a story about Jesus as a little boy making birds out of clay. And when he had the birds done, it said that he breathed into them the breath of the life, you know, and the birds flew off. Why? Because they thought Jesus was a super baby. There's another legend. There are some people who say in the early church that Jesus naturally grew taller and taller. But Jesus only had one set of clothes. It's that set of clothes you always see him in the pictures. You know, they were painted of him. And as Jesus grew taller and taller, his clothes grew longer and longer. Now, they believed that because they didn't really want Jesus to be a real, honest-to-goodness baby. I remember a relatively famous painting a few years ago by Richard Hook. Richard Hook does these modern pictures of Jesus. His wife, by the way, does the pictures of the Charmin babies on the toilet tissue. But it had a picture of Jesus walking out of the Jordan River after being baptized, and he was naked from the waist up, and his navel showed, and people were horrified. They were horrified to think that Jesus had hair on his chest. They were horrified to think that he had a belly button. Why? Because, well, Jesus isn't really human, is he? Well, what is a super baby? Well, I'll tell you, a super baby never whines. A super baby never cries. A super baby never spits up. A super baby never messes his pants. A super baby never disappoints his parents and always sits perfectly through every entire church service. That's what a super baby is. And I'd suggest to you that we often want Jesus to be a super baby rather than to be a normal baby like the ones who are very nice and quiet to this point in our church today. And as a result, I think we lose the, the paradox that Jesus was both true God and true man. That's why the scripture readings during the 12 days of Christmas, we celebrate the fact that he came as an honest-to-goodness human being into this honest-to-goodness real world he was circumcised and he howled with pain. I mean, he was just like every other little boy who ever grew up, yet we know, without sin. Now, why is it so important for us to underscore the humanity of Jesus? I think it's because the humanity of Jesus helps us understand a little bit of the humanity of God. Talking about the humanness of Jesus gives us a clue to what God is like. It reminds us that God comes to us in very plain and ordinary ways. That God comes to us through something as simple as water in a baptismal font. That God comes to us through something as simple as the words of the Bible. 
that God comes to us through something as simple as the bread and the wine on the altar, that God comes to us through human flesh of other ordinary people. And sometimes, because we want a super baby and a super God, we want super friends. And I think some people in church even would like to have a super pastor as well. In fact, I'm always a little bit suspicious of some people who look at me as if they're trying to spot the wings and the halo. But I've got news for you, friends. I'm no angel. I'm as human as they come. Sorry to disappoint some of you. You see, friends, we discover that God comes to us through normal human beings just like y'all, through your spouse, your friends, your kids, your neighbors, and even your pastor. God uses flesh and blood people just like you and me to get the job done, to get his message across. That's really part of the message of Christmas. See, God comes to us through the plain and the ordinary, through the fully human person like baby Jesus. God was born to a plain and ordinary, maybe 14-year-old girl. He was born in the stable inside of a house. He was placed in a manger full of straw, and he was surrounded with the real live smell of animals. See, God chose the common and the natural, the humble and the ordinary, to express his love to us. Our problem is, is that we often don't want God to come in ordinary ways. I mean, we don't want miracles that just work through nature. We would like to have magic that kind of violates nature. Uh, we don't want natural messengers called friends. I mean, couldn't God send a supernatural one with wings and a halo? Couldn't the bush burn on the corner of our block on the way home? We often don't want God to work in the ordinary things of life. We, we want God to work through the extraordinary, the supernatural, the presto changeo kinds of things. Maybe that's because we don't want God, we don't want Jesus to be a human baby. We want him to be that super baby. Let me give you an example. Some of you may actually believe that God is more present here in this building, in this worship center, than he is in your factory or in your truck or in your office or in your school or in your ranch or in your house. See, in church you say, oh, this is where the presence of God is. This is where I feel God. But you don't see or feel or experience the presence of God in the faces of the people with whom you work or play or live. But friends, let me tell you something. If you cannot see the face of God in the flesh and the blood of the people of the world that are surrounding you, you will not see the face of God at all. The message of Christmas is that Jesus is the clue to the humanity of God. And yet it's also about the humanity of us as human beings. That's what I really like about this story of Simeon and Anna. Two rather common and ordinary people who came to the temple one day. There were no miracles. There were no signs and wonders. All they did was look at this baby this honest-to-goodness baby, and they believed. That was enough for them. 
That's what Christmas is, friends. Jesus coming as a real, live human baby. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this gift of Jesus. God in the flesh. Lord, help us not to reduce him or make him more or less than what he is. We know he is your son, but yet he was a human being so that he could suffer for us, to, to live our life for us, to obey the law that we could not live all for us. He had to be human even to die. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. And we pray that we would be like Simeon and Anna, needing no miracles, no signs, no wonders, and just to be able to look at Jesus and to believe. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.